0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash Track, And thanks.
1: So what's new, Doug?
0: I bought a turntable. I feel... I feel silly saying it after years of saying, I would never play vinyl. Yeah. But uh, I did buy a turntable. The reason is, is because I have I do have some vinyl from that I've held on to for years. And I said, one of these days, I'll go to a friend's house and digitize it because they have a turntable. And I have done that in the past, but it's like, I just didn't want to have to have an appointment (laughs) to, to do this. You know, I didn't want to like, you know, call somebody up and say, okay, I'm coming over for the weekend and I'm going to, you know, digitize a half a dozen albums. So I thought, well, I might as well do it myself. I might as well have a turntable. I mean, you know, might as well have one. And uh, so I bought one. Now I haven't (laughs) taken it out of the box yet. That's the thing. It's like, I'm not really excited. I'm not, Uh. I'm not super excited as a new piece of gear to take it out. Right,
1: so it doesn't feel new to you. It feels old, well it kind of
0: does. I'm kind of I I'm, I'm kind of ashamed. <laughs> I don't really want to I don't really want to say, well, I have a turntable now because I've been not anti-vinyl. I'm not against, well, we've had conversations like this many times and it's like yeah. we're not against vinyl. It's just that vinyl for us it happened. It already happened. <laughs> and we know the problems and the shortcomings of vinyl and I I I I understand that you know, why people like vinyl now, because it's charming, it's nostalgic, it's it's uh, the artwork. The album cover is just an amazing thing uh, to a lot of people yeah. over the years. The artwork has been just as important as the music itself. And I, I, I get that. Um, but I've never wanted to listen to vinyl because, well, the shortcut reason is it's like when you drive a car off the lot. Starts losing value right away, right? That's exactly (laughs) what happens with vinyl. You start playing it, and because it's a physical object, it loses electrons of it fly off into the galaxy.
1: It wears. It wears down. And it just doesn't sound very good. So you didn't buy it to listen to records. You bought it to digitize records. Yeah, I bought it to use as a tool. So it's not going to be a leisure activity to sit back with your, whatever you call that vape thing you smoke, and a cup of coffee... Leaning back, turn the lights down, put on a Frank Sinatra record. Maybe. Maybe. Could happen. <laughs> Maybe. Could happen. I'm getting
0: the urge to, oh, going to get up and turn the record over. Yeah. You know, I'm practicing that, oh, got to get up, turn the record over. But I thought that was interesting that, you know, in the, in the years that we've been doing this podcast, we've been, we've been not, like I said, not anti-vinyl, just you vinyl c-
1: c- cognizant of its weaknesses yeah that's a good way of putting it to to the point that to me there's no charm in vinyl and there's no point in spending more money for it etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you if you're listening and you like vinyl more power to you yeah you are just you know using records made of russian oil so think of <laughs> yeah,
0: that what well, i used to have a show in college it was called Your daily dosage of petroleum resinoid byproduct. And what I would do, we we played the new music. That was the show. I forgot about that. Yes, vinyl is made from uh, oil, isn't it?
1: It's made from dead dinosaurs, but that that come from where, who knows where the vinyl, where the oil used for the vinyl comes from. But, you know, in, in these times, it is particularly, it is something to think about. You know, I've seen... We're not an environmental podcast. We're both in favor of, you know, cutting fossil fuels. And I've seen people say that there should be zero fossil fuels, but they keep forgetting how much plastic comes from oil, how much fertilizer is made from natural gas. So fossil fuels, I mean, if we can stop burning them, that would be great, but we're still going to need them for certain things.
0: Yeah, but not everything, not as—not in the, the degree. No, we it.
1: won't be burning it. We'll be molding it. Right. We could still make
0: cassettes, for instance.
1: So why don't you buy a cassette deck?
0: Well, I actually have a cassette deck. I have a a little boombox that I've had. Uh, well,
1: that's not a cassette deck. No, no, no. I'm talking no, a real cassette a deck. deck that's right. You're
0: right. You know that matches your stereo system. Right. That has a Dolby switch on it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, what is it? What's the metal tape? thing CRO 2 chromium yeah. oxide yep. oh, no! eight tracks are coming back too i have been noticing that
1: <laughs> no i don't think no, so no it's
0: true they are um uh what's <sighs> her name Nancy Sinatra and Lee Greenwood are releasing a a bunch of stuff including eight tracks of of their of their stuff and i'm like who has an eight track player i mean we've talked about yeah. how the clunk clunk but it's an interesting <laughs> i think eight track is a very interesting format it's weird the idea that it's continuous
1: it's like a loop right
0: that's what's interesting and the fact that there are four loops on it when in radio we used to have carts, and they just start and they stop right um but these you can run an eight track constantly and great for road trips that's why people like them in the car
1: yeah because it just wouldn't stop when you use those carts in radio they would start and stop automatically so the next time you'd put them in it would be queued up yes they have tones on them
0: so you would record a tone on it and the machines knew the tones they were Primary, secondary, tertiary codes. So, for instance, you'd put a primary code at the beginning and then one at the end, which would fire the next cart, which would fire the next cart. So you just load up the cart right. machines, hit one, and they would go for five minutes. you go off for a cigarette, come back. Hey, how you doing? That kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, carts had tones, so lots of tones.
1: <laughs> Were they used to play music as well back oh, then? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or just you, ads? You, yeah. Oh, okay, I thought it was only for ads. Yeah,
0: you could put, uh, you. in fact, what you would do is you'd get the single, You'd record it onto a cart, right? You'd put the single away, then in maybe yeah. a month or two after the cart kind of got, you know, maybe it got worn down, maybe whatever, the cues got loose. You'd record it again and put it in there. But generally speaking, yeah, carts and okay. music and, uh, well, anything like that. Anything that the radio station played would all be on cartridge.
1: Oh, I thought it would all be on record except for the ads. I thought huh? the point of the carts was ads. Sometimes okay. you play records, but...
0: Most A lot of times if you were playing like uh, the singles of the yeah. day, the hit singles of if the day. If you're doing a
1: top 40, yeah, yeah. where your playlist is a pile of cards. Right. You're not thinking. That's right. Yeah. So you got a pretty fancy turntable. You didn't get the techniques, but you got a Pioneer that's up there. This is not a cheap device. This is half an iPhone almost. Yeah. Um. Well,
0: I. you know, techniques is coming out with a big anniversary, a colored version of their classic, what is it, the ML-1200, whatever it is. But a 1,000, I forget. It's the one, it's the one, the turntable that everybody loves. And I thought, do I really want to pay a $1,000 for a turntable that I'm only going to use maybe once or twice a year? So I wanted the next best thing. I mean, I wanted quality because, you know, I've used these things and the better the turntable, the better the sound. So I looked for the next best thing. And I bought the Pioneer uh, PLX 500, which some commenters said is close enough to the techniques. Which you know it's hard to believe, but if they even dare to suggest that this turntable is even similar to the techniques, I thought that was good enough for me. So, mm. and, and like I said, I'm I'm not going to use it a lot. I'm not going to use it daily.
1: Yeah, I I find the technology interesting, and I'm looking at a photo here. It's got that red light, and it's got the four different rows of circles, and I always liked that in in turntables—the way you could get the speed just exactly precisely right. I I think that's pretty clever. Other than that, a turntable is really pretty simple. It just spins around. Now, of course, you have direct drive and belt drive and different things, and and you have, you know, it has to be, the feet have to be isolated and all, so you can get a $50,000 turntable. But I find the technology interesting that someone would actually have invented that. I guess they started with wax cylinders, and then they figured, well, if it's round and it goes around, we could make it flat. I wonder if it's because, I wonder what the difference,
0: what led to... The change from the cylinder to the disc, was it a matter of, like, they could get more information on it? Did it travel better? Could it be stored better? You know, what are the factors? You're looking it up right now.
1: Well, those wax cylinders were wax, so they wouldn't last very long. What, What I can see on Wikipedia is that Thomas Anderson invented the phonograph in 1877, and Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory made several improvements in the 1880s and introduced the graphophone, So this was with the wax cylinders. And the disc phonograph record um, was the dominant commercial audio recording format throughout most of the 20th century, et cetera, et cetera.
0: That was a long time ago.
1: That was, yeah, (laughs) this is 19th century technology, as you like to point out. It's
0: like, here I am. I brought this $500 piece of 19th century technology into my house. I don't know what's wrong with me.
1: Yeah. I I find (laughs) when you look at those old turntables with that... What would you call that speaker, that sort of seashell-type speaker? It's called, is it called a resonator? No. Resonator uh, is it, a type of guitar, uh, isn't it? Something
0: like that. Well, it's it's something that like, has a name like that, like a membrane or something. I don't I forget. They had a name. It
1: looks like it's called a horn or a flaring horn. Uh, and I think that's what you would call the things that that the old ladies in black-and-white movies would put in their ears when they were deaf, right? Yeah. I le-
0: A flaring horn. I think I used to work with a few flaring horns. <laughs> you know the kind of guy I'm talking about? I,
1: I think as an object, it, put yourself back in the early 20th century. At the dawn of this new technology, electricity has just arrived. And you have this thing that's playing music with this big horn. There's something, there's something futuristic about it in a way. I suppose. I suppose. I always thought
0: that it, it resembled a, um, like a musical instrument. You know, it had a musical instrument look to it.
1: But more like a flower, though, when you look yeah, at yeah, them. Yeah. Because you don't see any sort of controls like you would have on a, a brass instrument, right? No buttons, whatever you call the plungers, whatever. Valve. I, th- I think the the device itself must have been somewhat like having a personal computer in the 80s.
0: Yeah, maybe so. It is it is hard to think. To, uh, most people didn't even have electricity. A lot of times these things didn't even run on electricity. You had to wind them up, you know?
1: but you could wind them up. Yeah. Which was good. Yeah. I'm just looking on Google with some old images of the of, of early phonographs and the horns and there's a really wide variety. You know, that makes me think that's an object I would like to have in my home. I don't care if it works, just for the image. IKEA would sell different phonographs with different
0: horns for different rooms, you know. You would you would have a phonograph for the bedroom and perhaps you have a white Flaring horn, and then you have in the living room maybe something a little more, you know, um, um, uh, rococo, and then you know, that's
1: that sort of thing. And then the audiophile version would come with two horns yes. and perhaps a third sub horn for the low frequencies.
0: Yeah, I don't know why didn't they think about this all of that back then?
1: Really, why are people buying turntables <laughs> when they can buy these things? Yeah. No, this is worth... If I ever see one in, like, in... I don't often go to antique stores, but we have one around here. It sells all sorts of old stuff that I guess they get from, like, estate sales from the old farms around here. If I ever see one, I don't care if it works, I might buy it. I just like the object.
0: Yeah. Well, it's mostly a box with the... I mean, if just the box with a horn, that would be fine. Tidy it up looking like that. I mean, obviously, you know, you would try to play a record on it.
1: Well, I actually do have a bunch of vinyl still... But I would have to have a needle that works appropriately, and I would have to know that it would just destroy the vinyl anyway. That- those
0: things, those things you could use a, a, a tack. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> they don't care. Just throw something in there. Use a needle, a pen or yeah. something. It doesn't need a, a an actual... Diamond stylus.
1: I'm just thinking back to the whole futurist thing, because the, the futurist movement was around that time, right? As electricity was coming, technology, cars and all. And this really fits with that idea of, like, now we'd consider it steampunk, but back then it must have been really modern.
0: I think um, one of the... Um, there was a time when when they tried to combine all these things with radio and turntable, I mean, in the early 20s and 30s, and and radio became like, uh, you know, the, the buzzword, like the internet is the buzzword now, but radio was the buzzword back then. And to, to take the technology that had been working with sound amplification from the turntable and apply it to the radio, that's interesting too.
1: Well, yes, because so these early devices, you would have these cabinets, these four standing cabinets, which would have a lid that opens and, the gramophone would be in there and some of them would have a radio below. So these were electrical and they would use speakers. So the horn was gone. They would use the same amplification system for both playing records and listening to the radio. And that's another thing we don't appreciate. Every once in a while you see a picture of a family huddled around a radio in like the 1940s or something. We don't appreciate what that was, how important the radio was that it was the center of attention.
0: It's really interesting because I think um, nobody listens to the radio that way anymore. <laughs> Nobody's, it's, there's no such thing as appointment radio listening, really. I think when people listen to the radio, they're always doing something else. It's very rare that you actually sit down and cup your ear to the radio to listen to what's going on. I mean, sure, it does happen. I think podcasts have maybe taken over that role. But the the, the idea that radio and even listening to music at home is not where you you... Very few people just sit down and listen to music anymore. It's always a a background activity. But,
1: But back then, people didn't have anything else to do. That's right. That's right. Okay. I found the ultimate gramophone. This is from the British Library, from their sounds, radio and sound recording history section, playback and recording equipment. I'll put a link in the show notes. This is just magnificent. It's, the horn is wooden, and it looks like it folds up. So each of the pedals folds and the cabinet closes and there's a crank. So this is pre-electric and there's a lid on top of the gramophone. This is just, I mean, this is spectacular. I think this is wonderful.
0: This is the Sonos of (laughs) the, um, it's, that is a really wonderful. Now, see, it's got that Rococo look. It's got that Edwardian, uh, stylized look. You know what I mean? It's fascinating how they made these things they were furniture, but they were elect. They they weren't even electronic, really. They were
1: well. This one, this one has a crank, so it winds up. But again, the point is that these devices were the center of attention. They were the center of a home, and and as we said earlier, you said earlier the radio was like the internet today, right? the people who could afford this were the people who were on the cutting edge of technology at the time this was the same guy who had the car with the wind up crank to start it up and the goggles and the hat and all that this is the same guy right this is the guy today who is you know doing all the audiophile stuff it's it's that guy he's been around for centuries i would like to
0: this i'm sure there are magazines that catered to people who eventually became aficionados i don't i don't think the turntable captured the imagination of musical people right away it was you know one of the things that they wanted to use it for was um uh memoranda and speeches and things like that i one of the things that the they did not think of re- using it for recorded music that was not the exclusive thing
1: well in part because the length of the recordings early on was so short and of course that later affected music that seventy eights could only play a few minutes, so songs couldn't be very long. I was
0: thinking of this the other day, uh, I forgot why. The fade, the fade on on musical pop music, is is a is a, a an effect of having a limited amount of space on vinyl. Because rather than end it, they said, "Well, we'll just fade it," and it's like, but that's completely unnatural. No, no orchestra fades live. No band fades live.
1: But, but, think of the transition if you have to flip a record over it fades out, and you've got this memory that's lingering while you're turning the record over and starting it, and it fades in it kind of it's a segue
0: My thinking was that on the radio, you'd be listening to these songs these these records that faded,
1: and what 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 must oh, people you mean think just normal songs that? that fade out, yeah.
0: I mean, they're used to going to hear live music. You know, they go to the park and they hear a little band playing and they end the song. And then they go yeah. home and they put a record on or they listen to the radio and the song fades. And what what must have that... Why do they fade it? I think that would have been my question. Why is it fading out?
1: That's an interesting point. So not long ago, I listened to the Eagles Hotel California, which famously fades at the end. But when you hear the live version, it kind of goes to a, like a stop right? It kind of like wraps up. It has a couple of measures to to finish it up. And why does the fade do that? To suggest that it goes on forever?
0: Well, I have a couple of ideas about it. And I think some of it has to do with radio and some of it has to do with the length of space available in the media. And I think it enabled radio stations to shorten it more or less if they had to meet something at the top of the hour. So it was easier for radio people to play it because they could cut it short if they wanted to.
1: Yeah, but they could fade it out anyway. And they they never shied away from fading it out on their own, right? But that's what I mean. Fading became a thing. That's that, Well, when you're trying would... to if you fit to the time on radio, you could stop a song whenever you want. It just sounds too abrupt, though. It sounds like something's gone wrong if you stop the song without fading, right? But it sounds
0: weird. But what I'm saying is the people who first heard fades, what must they have been thinking? Why are you fading this music down? Hmm. It hasn't ended yet. Yeah. I mean, what is this fade? What is this? <laughs> why is the volume getting lower? What's going I'm going to return this turntable. I don't understand
1: why it's happening. I just looked up Gramophone Magazine. So Gramophone is a British classical music magazine. It was started in 1923, so it's 99 years old. That shows how quickly the gramophone became something, not just for classical music, but there, that there was an audience who wanted to—I'm thinking at that time, this was how you found out what new records were available, because you couldn't hear them on the radio. But this, this shows how quickly the gramophone had an importance in musical circles, and I wonder,
0: now that's classical music, and of course they recorded popular music, too. They did, you know... I'm sure there pop. were
1: other magazines before that, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I, I... I wonder if even their magazine covered other records, because, you know, there were so f- there were so few and far between. I wonder if they not only talked about classical music, but they talked about popular music. It might have been all one thing, you know what I mean? And I seem to remember, you know, one of the... Uh, Paul The Paul Whiteman Orchestra was... They did a lot of recordings, and... They, Probably the most recording, the, the most popular recording artist in America in the early thirties, and I wonder if that was considered on par with classical. You know that pop music because mm. it was. I want to listen to anything that I can get my hands on. I want to listen to any record, yeah. right?
1: Because there was so little.
0: So I, yeah. I think that's a very interesting aspect of it. That you know what what did people think about about genres back then? Was there a genre? Was it just recorded music, or
1: you know it's. It's all so new, and we will never know. We will never know. Yes. Well, I'm sure people have done research into this. There's enough written about the early recording process and and selling records and all that that there's a lot available. It's actually an interesting topic to look up. I'll have to see if there's a good book about that. Recently, I've been listening to a bunch of blues records. And when you look at the information about them, about, you know— so-and-so went to a studio and cut a bunch of sides, and this was back in the 20s. And this was really, at least in the United States, this was the first way that records really became popular. I don't know what else was going on. I know that there was that W.C. Handy sort of um, happy blues and ragtime at the same time. But the whole history of, of early recorded music is its fascinating. It's race-related in the United States the economy is interesting the the way it the way it legitimized music was very interesting
0: you know what's also interesting is it it presented new opportunities for opportunists like wc handy to uh, appropriate a lot of traditional music and publish it and so he gets the credit for writing what the st louis blues or something which i don't think anybody really knows who wrote the st louis blues but I mean WC Handy is credited with being, you know, the the grandfather of the blues and he's not. He's just a scheduler scat- who went around and had all this music published.
1: He's the and vulgarizer he of the, the blues.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he made
1: it palatable. It no yeah. longer had that that tinge of sin. The, the it didn't sound like the field. Yes, he removed the sin from the blues. He made it palatable for white people, basically. Yeah, and made a ton of money. That's, yeah. you know, that's what he
0: ultimately wanted to do.
1: Uh, speaking of authorship, we were discussing this last week. Uh, Reverend Gary Davis did a song called Samson and Delilah. If which I was had my way. Which was a version of a previous song called If I Had My Way. Right. And Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded it on their first record, and it was a huge hit. And they demanded that he get paid for it. So they gave him $500 with which he was able to buy a house. He had never owned a home before. And they kept giving him money from that record. And even though he just said, I think he said the song was re- the song was revealed to me. He didn't say that he wrote it, but he didn't say that he didn't. And this was the day where a single song could make you enough money to do that. Now, I'm sure they were giving him more because of kind of respect for, for him, but still... Now, you kind of laughed the other day. You put this on when we were talking, and it does have that kind of swinging 60s sound. But last night, I rewatched the documentary about Reverend Gary Davis. We talked about a few years ago with Woody Mann on the show. And there's this moment where Peter, Paul, and Mary are singing that at the Newport Folk Festival. They had chops. I know that they were like an early boy-girl band that was, you know— just pasted together, but they had chops. They could sing improvised like that. That was yes. really fascinating.
0: Yeah. They're, they're quite interesting. they it's, I find them quite jaded to listen to now. Um, but when I was growing up, we had Peter, Paul, and Mary's greatest hits, which I think a lot of people had or 10 years or whatever it was called. And it had all their hits on it. And, um, it, it, they really were remarkable people. Um, I mean, they were great archivists too. They were very well aware of the uh, yes, you know, the history of the music that they were singing.
1: I yeah, thought. but a lot of the sound was in the production.
0: Yeah, I think because Again.
1: hearing them live, it was very different. It was almost a revival kind of song the way they yeah. were singing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: good stuff. I'll have to go back and revisit some of that early folk stuff because I, I do like it. It has a lot of energy, and if there's anything I like, it's music with energy. So. Mm. OK, should we do some next tracks? I'd be delighted.
1: So I mentioned I've been listening to blues records lately. I've decided to pick up my guitar and play a little bit more, and it's been a while. And I discovered a very recently released record on Apple Music by Sun House. Sun House was an extraordinary delta blues musician. He had this great way of playing bottleneck guitar, very minimalist. It sometimes it would just be you know, a single note he's playing along while he's singing. But he had this big voice, not kind of like Gary Davison, you know, if I had my way, but more, it was kind of a preacher's voice. And the story is that he played some music, he cut a few sides, he stopped playing because he didn't get work, he moved up to Rochester, and in 1964... I'm going to link to an article talking about this. A red Volkswagen Beetle bearing three blues enthusiasts arrived in Rochester, New York. I can just see them with the, you know, the, the berets and all that. The young men were following a trail of clues in search of a legend. They found him sitting on the steps of an apartment building. And Sun House had not played music for 20 years. So this was the rediscovery of Sun House. This new record called Forever On My Mind is, was actually recorded before that first rediscovery album. And so it's Sun House getting back to music for the first time in decades. Fascinating stuff. I really like this music. It's a sound like, it's a unique sound. You know, there's blues where it sounds like the blues, and there's blues where it sounds like Mississippi John Hurt, Gary Davis, Sun House. The title track, Forever On My Mind, I don't think it's on any other record. Death Leather is an extraordinary song. Louise McGee is relatively well known. So Forever On My Mind, Sun House just out... A couple weeks ago, that's my next track. What have you got, Doug?
0: I've been listening to an awful lot of music lately and uh, come to discover that there's quite a bit of things that I really should be listening to, or at least should put on a list of things I should listen to. I think at the top, I'm going to put Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story. This is a record that came out in 1971 before anyone imagined that Rod Stewart would be singing about hot legs or inquiring if people thought he was sexy this is his third solo album. Faces are on the record. They're uncredited due to contractual problems, but they're definitely on a, a version of I Know I'm Losing You. But mostly the record is um, what I would call British folk pop. A lot of the musicians on the, on the record are from British folk outfits. And of course, his big hit, his breakthrough hit Maggie May," is on it. I seem to remember that this album sort of invented its own sound. It was it was within the rock context, but it also, you know, used a lot of these folk elements, particularly British folk elements. I, I really I really do like it, and I've, I've heard songs from it, you know, individually, but I, I used to listen to this album all the way through, and I haven't done that in a long time, and it really does pay off. It's a very well laid out album, 40 minutes of music, and uh, quite delightful to listen to before Las Vegas Rod Stewart showed up. Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story is my next track. This was episode number 234 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash Track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.